a blood-black nothingness, a system of cells, within cells interlinked, within one stem, and dreadfully distinct, against the dark, a tall white fountain played. <laughs> Kelly, and you're listening to General Intellect Unit. In this episode, we're resuming our discussion of Blade Runner 2049. If you've not listened to part one yet, I'd recommend you pause this episode, go back one, and listen to part one first, uh, because otherwise this episode's not going to make a lot of sense. Needless to say, there are spoilers ahead, but then again, spoilers are bourgeois propaganda, so you should probably just listen to the episode anyway. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. So they head out the door um, now that they're they're kind of un they're kind of un, un, untethered from that home setting. Um, this kind of starts a new sort of dynamic in the film. Um, they want to figure out the origin of the horse, the little wooden horse. Um, they take it to a guy who tells them that it's um, it's made of real wood, which is rare apparently in this this setting, um, but it's also irradiated. Um, there's a very sl- slight sort of radiation in it, and the radiation signature matches that of a dirty bomb that was set off in Las Vegas. So they head to Las Vegas, uh, which is now abandoned, uh, irradiated, and kind of bathed in this kind of orange dust, uh, which gives it a really striking visual. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, just a kind of indelible series of uh, images that, uh, you know, are just going to be emblematic of this of this film forever, I'm sure. Really fantastic stuff. Uh, and apparently it was inspired by... The uh, dust storms in Australia, in Sydney, uh, a couple of years back, uh, where, where like, you know, Sydney Harbour was just completely caked in this kind of orange light, uh, very similar to the way this is shot. Um, The action temporarily switches back to um, Joshi's perspective, where she's visited by Love, who um, threatens her and just kills her, um, wants to know where um, Kay has gone and... uh, Joshi won't give it up, uh, just won't give up the information. Uh, Love has this kind of interesting line um, that, uh, envious of the fabulous new, your only thought is to kill it. Um, so Love seems to have a sort of idealistic view of what the kind of discovery of this replicant child will mean for replicants. Mm-hmm. Kind of in contrast with Wallace and Joshi. Yeah, she's the only character in this movie who has a kind of bold vision of the future as something new like it's the the thing is that with wallace you know he is this patriarch who is sending his vast legions out into space to explore to 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 explore the final frontier uh but it's very much just like that kind of dead 
expanded uh, reproduction uh thing that capital does that it, it it's it's like it's just an extension of quantity right the quality is irrelevant to him it's just a matter of like how many planets can i conquer just need more right yeah but for love there seems to be a kind of dimension of qualitative novelty here that excites and inspires her yeah um and she says something to the effect of, like, you can't hold back the tide with a broom. You know, it's this very, like, revolutionary statement, right? Um, uh, that, you know, she's convinced that a great historical change is coming. Which is um, kind of ironically, um, her position seems to be more revolutionary than that of the uh, replicant resistance. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, that that does seem to be the case. Um, so she's a very interesting and sort of ambiguous character, um, and and like you know maybe one of the, like it's like Joshi and her are the two female characters in this movie who get the most sort of like attention paid to their interiority, right? Like to their to their psychological world, um, and and so yeah, it's, it's it's very interesting to see these two characters together in this scene because they're both very strong characters. Yeah, and they're they're clearly on both of them are on a different level than Joy and Marietta uh, in terms of their the dimensions they have in the in the script. Um, and, and this is the you know one thing to note here is that this is an interaction between capital and the state. Yes, right? yeah, that in. In the end, the state is actually powerless in the face of capital. Like the uh, morgue technician uh, who is murdered by uh, Love earlier in the movie, and then um, Joshi being murdered by Love. It's like, this is not something that Wallace necessarily ordered Love to do. Mm. Uh she's kind of acting independent independently but it's kind of like that thing where you know coca-cola isn't going to tell their sub their subcontractor to murder union organizers mm. but if they happen to murder a few union organizers i mean eh, it's okay right as long as the job gets done like a you know plausible deniability right um uh so like you know capital is kind of like a sort of disembodied general force here is is dominant over the power of the state and also um i think that love is expressing that kind of revolutionary uh it's like it's that revolutionary sort of aspect of capitalism that marx and engels talk about in the manifesto but it's like conscious of it in the sense that usually only socialists actually are, <laughs> yeah. you know, like it's like that thing where like we were talking about earlier about Toffler and like how Toffler was actually inspired by Marxists. Yeah. Yeah. This is um in, in the case of uh, the character of love in this film, like this is kind of weird like that. She's got this um, very forward thinking kind of perspective and is, a capital stooge and is kind of is kind of also wedded to wallace's outcome which is very different from hers yes there's a lot of dimensions of sort of power and subservience to her character um you see that a lot in the scenes where she sees replicants being murdered by uh wallace and she cries 
Mm, yeah. Like she can't experience any, she can't show any facial expression, but that she does nevertheless cry about it. So, like, there's this, like, there's this real sense in her character of just this, like, brooding, enormous, violent um, uh, ocean of emotions that is kept down by her sort of, like, need to act in very, um, like, formal and precise ways for her job. Yeah, and it eventually does come to a head um, in this sort of climax of the film, uh, which is, again, another fantastic, really fantastic performance um, from that actor. Um, so switching back to Kay, he sort of comes upon a hotel in the ruins of Las Vegas and finds in there, uh, it's all just abandoned, you know, just dust everywhere, but finds Deckard. He's, he's hiding out in this hotel. And there's this kind of like, this kind of like tense standoff between the two of them, you know, uh, Kay goes over a banister and falls to the ground and scurries off into this theater um, where this like really strange fight scene plays out where like it's in this kind of theater where this show starts automatically. It just starts playing, but it's like a hologram projection of Elvis Presley in like a show band kind of scenario. And it's all glitched out. Like the visuals are kind of screwy and fucked. Like um, you see Elvis will be there just completely silent, glitching. And then a little burst of music will come in and then like glitch again. And it's just really, it's really sort of strange, this shattered and disjointed sequence of memories that are playing out in this environment. And that serves as the backdrop for this uh, confrontation between Deckard and Kay. Yeah, it's, it's really fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't really know what to make of this scene, like what the significance of the scene is in in the context of the broader movie. Like, mm. obviously, you know, Las Vegas is a wasteland. There's this sort of decrepit grandeur of the place in a kind of sort of like Bioshock sort of way, right? It's this this place that was so opulent and now has fallen to this this state of affairs. Yeah, uh, I, I take it to be kind of um, an analogy for the kind of, again, the theme of memory, these mm-hmm. the very literally broken memories that like can't be replayed, uh, you know, accurately. There's kind of, it's, yeah, I, th- I think it really just is about that, that like this. Um, and I think that the desynchronization and the, sh- and the breakage is significant as well. Um, mm mm-hmm. And it, it kind of, I think it's important that it, it doesn't bear any relation to what's happening with the characters. Like they're, they're completely disconnected from this context and this, this context doesn't really give a shit about them either. It just sort of, it's, it's this really, it's a broken environment in which their, their conflict plays out. Yeah. And, and, and there's that line at the end of the fight where Deckard says something like, I like his music about Elvis. And it's just like. I don't know. I guess it's supposed to establish like what the hell Deckard was doing for all this time, right? <laughs> just watching it's been this like, show. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's been like what, like twenty, thirty years, almost. Yeah, almost thirty years. Yeah, a little under thirty years. So, um, so he's just been kind of hanging out here alone with his dog. <laughs> um, the dog is amazing. I love the dog. And like an infinite <laughs> supply of whiskey and Elvis music. Uh, so and, and like I I really like the decision that they made that in this movie to not really give Harrison Ford anything in the way of makeup and just make him look, like just make him look just so 
beat down and ragged <laughs> and just utterly unattractive right because it's like you know he's he was like the ryan gosling of his time right like he was this kind of sex symbol and and it's just like you know look at what he is like look at what being on the outside has done to this mm. guy look at what age has done to this guy um uh he's very like shaggy dog you know like in the yeah it's like that is 100 percent the personification of him right that, that dog that's just like it's really like mangy and just like unpleasant <laughs> looking um it's a real yeah. ugly dog <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Um, yeah. Oh, and there's there's a great line though with the um, with the dog where uh, Kay asks, "Is it real?" And uh, Decker just goes, "I don't know. Ask him." Yeah, <laughs> which it's like who gives a shit? <laughs> yeah, which yeah. again is this authenticity thing that like, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't seem to actually matter whether the things or the experiences are real or not. It's just they they are and they're happening. And it, it's also that thing where. Kay has come to Deckard to a ask questions, right? It's a, the first thing he says is, I just want to ask you some questions, and then Deckard attacks him. Um, and then at the end, they go back to the questions. And it's that thing where, like, Kay has come looking for answers or meaning, but, like, it's not something Deckard can really provide, right? It's like, even if you knew everything that happened it still wouldn't solve your existential crisis. Right. right? <laughs> so, like, it's like, why not ask a dog, you know? Just, like, <laughs> it would give, get you just as far mm. to understand that, right? And, um, like, Kay's quizzing of Deckard is kind of important here, where Kay is still under the impression that he's probably the, the child that's being looked for, and he asks Deckard about Rachel, like... Um, just kind of probing questions about their relationship or about why why Deckard left and all this kind of thing or what what happened to the child. And Deckard's answer is basically that, you know, he left because it was the thing they'd agreed to do, that, like, they had all sort of agreed to split up and hide. Um, and thus, Deckard has no knowledge of anything beyond that point anyway, which, again, is this weaponization of forgetting uh, that to right. pr protect themselves, they've um, uh, forgotten about each other. Um, and again, it's it's a very hollow set of answers for for Kay. Like there's there's no, I, I I don't think I derive any satisfaction from those answers. You know, um, I don't think he does either. Right. And then yeah, because he's he's just kind of at a loss of what to do after he talks to Decker because yeah. Decker just kind of like you know buggers off and he's just sitting there in the bar chilling you know listening to was it sinatra? sinatra yeah there's this little sort of projector dome thing on the jukebox that plays back a 3d projection of sinatra and it's like again the simulation thing um where like it's, it's on, on the first level there's no reason for these people to want to care about frank sinatra anyway like it's not of their era it's not a real nostalgia that they have it's just this kind of very fake kind of thing and I, I know it's las vegas but yeah that's that i think that's the reference there right is that like this is it's just because it's vegas yeah right? yeah yeah and um, they're supposed to just enjoy it because that's the thing that you're supposed to do with that um yeah it's like old, old timey kind of <laughs> yeah yeah but like somebody put the work into recreating that 3d projection of sinatra you know like and 
this was all crafted and sort of built and made artificial for the sake of yeah, that kind I, of entertainment. I think that this space in the casino is the most reminiscent of the set design in the original Blade Runner, you know? And and so it does really call back to Deckard's character by sort of emulating the look of the original Blade Runner. Uh, and there is that very sort of like nostalgic kind of, but also just like leftover look to things in the original Blade Runner. Like it's just these... There, there are these artifacts of history that have just sort of accumulated everywhere around the characters, and they just kind of live in it. Yeah, like his, history's already happened, and it's all of its shit is piled up like, in the corner. Especially like when you think about like Deckard's um, relationship to Elvis, right? He's like, I like his music. It's like, it's not like he came to Vegas to see the Elvis show. He just happened to be here and really bored and <laughs> Elvis was there, right? Like that, you know, like it's, it's like this very sort of like uh, coincidental relationship to things. Yeah, it's um, and I think I think we might have touched on this before, but maybe it was in the, the pre-show. But the um, this kind of manufactured nostalgia in this setting where like for, for Joy, like in the, the, the first scene where we meet her. Um, she's got that 50s housewife sort of thing going on. But it's not clear whether Kay deliberately chose that outfit for her and chose that kind of aspect of her personality, or if it was just the default, uh, like, pack that came with the, the purchase, you know, and that other skins would be a, a, a DLC. Um, yeah, totally. Um, and, you know, it, it seems like that's likely the case because, like, Joy is able to alter her appearance in order to provide a appearance that is the most appealing to her owner, um, right? Like, uh, but it does seem like she's kind of like flipping through a catalog of options, like you know. Mm. It, do, it does feel like a like a carousel kind of interface, like a swipe yeah. thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, exactly. But I think that relates to this scene here, and it's this kind of a broad theme in the kind of day-to-day uh, -day lives of these characters. This kind of like uh, that the only the only thing they can consume is the what the environment presents them with, and it's not like they have any real affection for the twentieth century, which is like far outside of um, what could ever be their sort of lived experiences. It's just might as well be a different planet, you know? Yeah, yeah. It could be for all. Like that's that's kind of an interesting thought. Like, I mean, imagine. Imagine like a teenager or whatever listening to Frank Sinatra and kind of like what, thinking it's like somebody from the off-world colonies or something. Yeah, you know, like it could yeah. it could be anything to them. Like it, it wouldn't make make any well, difference. Well, it's like uh, I was um, I was talking with my students the other uh, the other day in, in class, and uh, I was trying to like somebody asked me like when you use uh, the preposition um, on with a adjective. I was like trying to think of all these examples. Like, there's hardly any examples in English when you do that. But I was like, oh, like yeah, like crazy on you, yeah, like that song. It's you know, <laughs> using an adjective with uh, a preposition on, and I, like played the song for them. And and like you know, it's like from a foreign culture and from like a time like way beyond their time, right? Um, and it's just like total lack of connection to the song, right? Um, but if they were in this kind of situation that Deckard's in, where it's just like, you're stuck in this place, and hey, you can go watch Heart, 
Um, <laughs> yeah. Probably going to get pretty into it, I guess, you know? <laughs> yeah, when it's the only option available. Um, it's, it's very much like that Wilson uh, volleyball in Castaway, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and it, it has the same sense of projection. Um, yeah, so I think the next thing that sort of happens in the plot is that um, the Wallace goons catch up with them in las vegas um they attack the hotel they kind of break into the apartment and that sort of thing and like they try to escape all that kind of thing but the the long and the short of it is that like uh joy is killed when her her emanator is broken deliberately by love when she stomps on it yes and and there's well there's that's that line that she gives is like uh, are you enjoying our product or yeah. something like that like when she she asked him in the archives in the first time as well, she noticed that there was like the tone indicating that Joy was there, and it's like, oh well, this is just like one of our products. So, but like now she knows that that the antenna has been removed, mm. so she's intentionally murdering Joy in order to uh, basically just cruelly hurt Kay, right? Yeah, there's a real malice in Love's um, actions here. Yeah, and, and 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 you know, I think was it like the last thing that that Joy says is that she loves Kay, right? But gets cut off when she gets stomped. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's kind of heartbreaking. But um, so Joy Joy is killed, Kay is wounded and just left there, and Deckard is taken. Um, and it's kind of like we're kind of seeing that like Deckard is now, from Wallace's perspective, the key to getting to the child. Uh, Wallace believes that Deckard will have the information uh, how to track down the kid. Yeah, and this is kind of taking us into like, well, this is like the climax of the second act of the movie, right? The interrogation of Deckard. Uh, the w one thing I did want to mention, though, just about Joy before we completely leave her behind is, well, I guess she shows up one more time in the movie, but I said earlier that she takes a completely different trajectory from the character in her, where that character sort of like, ascends into this kind of godlike cosmic intelligence by networking with other people or with other intelligences like either uh, artificial intelligences or human intelligences like you know she's like carrying on a relationship with eight men at once right and then eventually she just gets to the point of like cosmic brain meme where she just like <laughs> goes off into the stars, right? Whereas like Joy is like, no, I am going to stake my existence on this one man. Um, and I'm just going to play out the purpose I was created for, which is to be this love object. Yeah, and she becomes disconnected from the uh like cloud intelligence or whatever it is that powers. Yeah, and the so she dies according to like not like what she was necessarily like ordered to do in her original programming but just playing out like the sort of disposition she was given as a program in the beginning yeah like that you are supposed to be a a, a loving and uh faithful and uh a, a very uh committed wife figure Mm, um, and, yeah. and so she she doesn't deviate from that. She doesn't like expand her consciousness beyond that. She just does exactly what she was programmed to do, even if it is in a way that what deviates from what Wallace programmed explicitly, right? 
So there is like an evolution for her character where she deviates from the original parameters of her operation, but it's more like she's just like doubling down on what she was originally created to do, right? Mm, yeah. Um, and in this, the sort of um, entanglement between authenticity and artifice is kind of kind of clear because like a character in a movie dying or sacrificing themselves or whatever is usually used as kind of validation of them as a person um, or is kind of a, a signifier of their personhood. Like, oh, you know, he, he gave his life for whatever. And um, Joy kind of falls in combat, essentially, in this kind of thing. But um, mm -hmm. there still is that lingering question of whether she was real or not. But then the kind of she's very clearly real and also very clearly artificial at the same time. Yeah. So anyway, we get to the interrogation, right? Yeah. So I think there's a very brief thing where... Um, Kay is recovered by Mariette in the resistance um, and he's he's bundled into the boot of their car and then they fly off but we do get to the, the interrogation then well the, the important thing about the resistance is just that well this is where Kay learns that he is not the child yes right? th that's the order of it this this happens first where he he learns from the resistance people that he's not he's not the child it's a, it's a daughter instead yeah and that like when he saw the twins that were um, displayed in the DNA records, the fake was the boy, not the girl. So because of his desire to believe that he was this real born soul possessing person, he assumed mistakenly that the daughter was the fake and that he was the real one. Very, very male chauvinist of him. Yeah, <laughs> but he, he, he read his desire into the text, right? Like, that, that was what was going on there. And, in fact, the Resistance leader reveals that, like, oh, that's not just you. That's, like, all of us. We all want to be the child, the that, chosen that, one. That's the line, yeah. We all, we all wish it was us um, because they all... And there's, there's a group of, like, 20 or 30, uh, you know, cloaked figures in this, uh, in this scene that are participating in this. Um... I hadn't realized, I, I I had just kind of skipped past that, but I think you'd mentioned earlier that you think it, this this indicates that they had all had that same implanted memory, or at, or at the very least a similar experience. Yeah, I think that I think that's kind of what led them to the resistance in a sense. Right. Um, it, and uh, it's an interesting way of playing off of the uh, classic Chosen One prophecy plot that the... Prophecy has a certain truth because enough people believe it's true. Yeah. However, uh, the significance of the prophecy is very much open to question and whether the resistance really have a intelligent or viable revolutionary praxis here is is dubious to say the least. Like it's it's not really clear what the value of this possibility of sexual reproduction really is. Because, you know, at the start of the movie, Kay is set on this idea that what is born has a soul. But that's a... It's a very questionable pr uh, premise, right? Um, it's not that it's, like, you know, prima facie just false, right? But it's... It's questionable. It's not clear, right? It, it's it's not clear to the extent that you might want to stake your life on it, 
but then what does the resistance really have to lose right so yeah it kind of feels like um it feels like the resistance here have kind of bought into the bullshit um in that like i think we mentioned earlier that this society is structured on an extraordinarily flimsy premise the the premise that because replicants are manufactured rather than being born they are thus not people yeah it seems weird that the the rep the the replicant resistance have kind of bought into that as an axiom and then they, they want to c- take control of the narrative by having the child be on their side um, right right yeah what, what no, happen, it's totally what it is what would happen would be that like they would come out into the streets and go oh we one of us was born and then they get shot down because nobody gives a shit that they were born like that that's not the point yeah no one would give a shit or or they would just move the move the goalposts right Exactly right, and it's it's like the kind of folly of um, debating. You know, there's a certain kind of like ultra conservative wacko that like um, they'll point to things like I don't know black crime stats or something, and even if you argue them down on that point, they'll quickly go and switch over to something else because it's they didn't actually give a shit about the crime stats. It was about a deeper thing. Yes. Yes. You know, that's the same thing here. That like it it doesn't seem like yeah you put it correctly that like it doesn't seem like they have a a viable revolutionary praxis in this because like i think they i think they could almost contrary to what joshi thinks like they could announce this from the rooftops and it probably wouldn't lead to um a massive overhaul of this society because the economic base and the kind of role of replicants in the labor force and all that sort of stuff is so deeply entangled that well yeah i mean and this gets to like uh Okay, there's, there's a lot of things there that, you know, it, on the one hand, it gets to the reason why slave revolts almost always fail, um, because it's what actually binds the slave into a position of slavery is not the police for brutality that holds them down, right? Like, that is the front line of the system of oppression but it is not the most profound level of the system of oppression right that once the police power is overthrown the thing that really the revolt ends up running into is that there is a mode of production or a system of infrastructure set up around them that requires their servitude to function Right, that society is set up in such a way that their servitude is assumed, um, and this is really what happened. Even like in only the like in, in in the only real like successful slave revolt in history, uh, which was the Haitian Revolution, um, they ended up having to set up like a facsimile of master-slave relations within Haiti just because of their position in the global economy and the way that the Haitian geography had been shaped to accommodate a slave mode of production. Um, and, and so, you know, there's really that question about the resistance in this movie where there's kind of like this specter of seizing the means of production that is held out with this idea of sexual reproduction. Hmm. That like, oh, if we could reproduce without the you know, um, infrastructure provided by the Wallace Corporation, we would be free in some way. Uh, But that isn't really 
how the issue is framed. It's framed in much more like sort of uh, ideological terms of of soul bearing, right? Like that is a that's a very different sort of approach to this question. Um, and I feel like this kind of slave revolt would probably run into the same problem there that like okay we overcame the immediate barrier to our servitude and we can pronounce our independence but the system is going to grind us down right um yeah so that i mean it's it's an interesting question but i i think that there is supposed to be something sort of confused or muddled about the resistance in this movie Mm. they're portrayed as very it's a very idealistic sort of thing and it's borderline sort of religious um they don't get a lot of screen time either so i I think we might have probably mentioned this in the pre-roll as well but like um it'll be interesting to see what happens when the inevitable director's cut or uh yeah the, the final cut come out um because the the content of the film is supposedly like substantially longer like it would have it would have been a four-hour film um yes yeah so it will be really interesting to see what the kind of in-between scenes and um you know sort of resistance scenes that might pop up there um and you know it kind of reminds me of like apocalypse now um the redux version right where you get that scene with the the french uh like i guess they were like plantation owners um that was added into the movie was like cut out of the original cut um and just kind of like how that contextualizes the movie in terms of the continuity between french and american colonialism um and so like i'm kind of looking forward to seeing those kinds of scenes added to this movie in the in the future yeah hopefully um because as it stands the resistance leader gets exactly two scenes and yeah like a, it's a pretty pretty total. much a shot a sideshow like a something that is in the background moving things along but but not uh not foregrounded in the conclusion in any way um but at this point in the film it's pretty clear that the memory maker anna anna staline is the child um the the replicant daughter and Deckard is still the key to finding her. And so we, I think it switches to a scene where Deckard is quizzed by Wallace uh, in in the sort of headquarters. Um, and what's the content of the scene again? It's something about... Well, he, um, first he tries the carrot before doing the stick, right? right. So he, he has created a replica of Rachel um, to tempt uh, Deckard with, right? And, uh, and so she com- uh, comes out and there's this sort of... Um, cg reproduction of uh of rachel from the uh introductory scene that she's in in uh blade runner um wearing the same clothes uh it looks almost convincing (laughs) uh i I was pretty convinced yeah it's yeah um... it's it's it's, the skin is a little bit too smooth in, in, in in my opinion but it it it's it's like, if you watch this on a small screen, I think it would look very convincing. Mm. Yeah, um, like, I think a lot of these um, these kinds of tricks uh, look better in... I think they, w- they would actually look great on film, um, where you have that kind of smear and blur, that kind of um, mm-hmm. papers over a lot of these kind of kind of issues. Um, yeah. I, I think as, as, it, as it stands, it looks... I think on the second time around, I noticed, as I go, this is probably a CG thing, rather than getting a, an actor to do it. Right. 
Um, but you know, it it mostly works. And um, the the issue though that Deckard has, even though he's tempted for a moment, is that because the records that um, Wallace had uh, were imperfect, they made a mistake in the reproduction and they got her eye color wrong. Mm, her um, eyes were green so instead of... Yeah, her eyes yeah. were green. And then, you know, um, Wallace just sort of gestures to Love, who uh, kills her. Uh, <laughs> just kills, on the spot. Kills, yeah. yeah, just... Yeah, like, you're mm. worthless, you know? Yeah. Um, which, you know, is, is there to sort of... You know, it, it's horrifying how cruel Wallace is, but also, like, it's there to emphasize that that could have just as easily been love right like these replicants are so disposable to wallace um yeah so like the fact that she's murdering um you know her sister in a sense uh is is something that is done out of uh it's an is an act done out of terror right but also you know just sort of establishes that wallace is not to be fucked with right no he's a ruthless very cruel sort of person um I want to take a little sidebar there, actually, because um, the sound design for the gunshots in this film is exquisite. <laughs> um, yeah, they're yeah, very yeah. percussive. Very good. Um, very good. Yeah, they, they they don't reverberate very much in the environments at all. There's just this very very blank kind of thud, like a big a big thump. Really fantastic stuff. <laughs> Lots of impact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, almost makes me want to just have a, a little button that'll do that sound. Um, I want to get a soundboard. Maybe I could make like an iPad app for that or something. Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> or oh, you could you could mod Doom, so just switch the sound files. Oh, yeah, you totally could do That'd that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe that's the thing people will latch onto because there's such a like fetishization of Deckard's pistol from the first movie but maybe the thing that people will latch onto of this movie is the, <laughs> the sound, sound of pistols <laughs> <laughs> oh nice um but there's a, there's another theme as well in this it's a, a recurring theme in this kind of scene of like uh deckard sort of insists that like he he doesn't know where the child is on this he can't have known because he left at such an early stage and again the weaponization of forgetting uh, or c- control yeah. over memory as a as a weapon um so it switches back to k briefly who um well but there's just one important line there i wanted to highlight which is that deckard when he is confronted with the monstrosity that wallace was Mm. he says something to the effect of like you've never been a father have you yeah yeah Uh, and then wallace is like oh i have millions of children right and i think this is like oh this line is just there's if you just read it like straight, I think this line is really damning of this movie because it puts this emphasis on fatherhood as like like oh like I'm an authentic father and you're just like this, you know, like uh sham of <laughs> of, yeah. of a father. You have millions of children but you didn't sire any of them. Right, that like you never had a parental relationship to anyone you ever created, but I did have a parental relationship, and that's what really matters. But like, it's bullshit, right? Because mm-hmm. Deckard had a 
daughter, but like never knew her or raised <laughs> yeah. her or anything. Like, what the hell does Decker know about being a father? Yeah. Like nothing, right? He never was a father. Like, like all he did was just like, you know, have sex with Rachel. That's like he sacrificed something to protect his daughter. Yeah. And I guess like there's a sort of disposition there as a father that he might be drawing on. But like in a in like a meaningful sense of like raising a or rearing a child, he doesn't know a damn thing about it. No, like so, as, as recently as an hour ago, he didn't even know it was a possibility to be reunited with that kid. Um, yeah, yeah, but so, I mean, he's, he's all about it now. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, he's he's like he's doubled down, um, and uh, and mm, I mean, yeah, this gets back to like sort of the big questions of this movie. I think we might talk about at the end here um, about parenthood and what it means. Mm. We we are sort of crawling up on the end, um, and I think one one of the last sort of meaningful bits of the film before it sort of tapers off into the usual sort of conflict ending is um, that Kay uh, sees like a f full billboard advert for uh, for Joy. Um, it's this like I don't know three hundred foot tall naked pink lady with uh, with blue hair, and she uh, yeah, and she's a hologram, right? Like she actually like comes down and interacts with him. Yeah, because uh, he he's on a bridge or something. Like he's elevated, and uh, she crouches down to get to his level. But she she says um, it's obviously it's an ad. It's trying to do the ad thing of trying to get him to buy. But it the advert specifically, I think it says uh, you look like a good Joe. Uses the name that his instance of joy gave him, um, which kind of leads me to think like it's it's probably like again joy's nature is so mysterious that like it's probably it probably is a single instance once you've purchased it, but then it's also a cloud intelligence that like it probably synchronizes some data back up to the cloud and then each instance like there's probably a lot of machine learning there and then the conclusions are used in the advertising to try and optimize for sales and this kind of stuff it's really like we've already sort of grappled with the nature of joy and her existence and like um or her, whether she's a real mind or not but then you've got this big spanner thrown into the works right at the end of like it sort of expands the possibilities for what she actually was right like so she made this sacrifice um for k and yet, here she is again, back from the dead, so to speak. And it's it's like it's possible that the Joe thing is something that was uploaded to like the core server of her software, but it's also possible that that was just like a thing that was like garbage data that was left over from the advertisement and which was like pulled up out of her like machine unconscious as like a name that she would give to Kay, right? Because it's like oh. There's like there's like a pattern recognition there, right? Like, oh, like, you know, as advertisement joy, I address my um, John, so to speak, as Joe, uh, my like, you know, master figure, husband figure, owner figure in, in this domestic situation is in like a roughly similar category. Therefore, I'm going to map this name, which I apply to the customers elsewhere um onto this person right so like that's also a possibility but i think those are both possibilities right that it could be an upload or it could be like a it could be like a thing that went upstream or it could be a thing that was going yeah. downstream 
Um, it's real weird. <laughs> yeah, and like just that, like I think they change her voice in this scene. I'd have to like watch them back to back, but I, it sounds like there is like a a sort of soft and sultry tinge to her voice that is given in this advertisement that sort of makes her seem more alien. I mean, also she's got like the really weird eyes and the blue hair and she's pink and all that and all that kind of thing. And so like that does kind of give the suggestion that the joy that Kay had was tailored to his personality in some mm. way. Yeah. Because she's very proper, right? She's she's very like uh sort of uh like a girl next door sort of thing yeah she's girl next old, door yeah. sort of like this like you know like good middle class girl kind of appearance that she has um she's the kind of girl you'd meet in college you know and then yeah down exactly with. exactly exactly uh whereas in this advertisement it's just this very lurid sex symbol yeah right absolutely so like it's possible that other instances of joy are just that right Oh, like, that's the that's, that's the that, DLC pack you buy with the you know the the day one DLC and you you get the, the right. season pass. <laughs> oh god! Yeah, <laughs> and that's 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 the uh, thing they, they were going after. The founders package, yeah. Oh Christ! Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, it's grim, but um, it's very very grim, yeah. Yeah. So then the, the next thing that we we see is that K, um, like Deckard is being transported somewhere. I I think he's being kind of transported over water in one of these fl- uh, um, a cluster of these flying vehicles, and it, it seems like he's being brought to uh, a spaceport just outside of the wall. And I think like yeah, when- Wallace says something about taking him uh, basically to a a black site in space where he can torture him as much as he wants. Yeah. Right. So it is again, getting back to these sort of like callbacks to American empire, right. That like, these, these are like CIA black sites, right? Yeah. Um, And we, we got a glimpse of this, uh, spaceport in the initial kind of flyover of the seawall where, um, like a big hulking spaceship is kind of looming out of the mist very briefly in that scene. But um, right. they're heading towards it now and Kay attacks this convoy and manages to bring down the car that has Deckard inside and it kind of crashes onto the sort of shore, I suppose, at the foot of the uh, the, the seawall. And this fight scene plays out then between um, Kay and Love while Deckard is still kind of handcuffed to the railing in this car while it's kind of sinking into the sea. Yeah, and it's quite a long fight scene. Yeah, it's kind of long and it's pretty brutal. Um it's they... very very brutal and it like I felt like the action scene in um the Las Vegas setting mm. was very unimpressive um in terms of like that sort of adrenaline pumping intensity that you associate with action scenes normally mm. but this scene is like incredibly brutal this is vicious and just yeah. like and the, and the music the music really plays to this a lot in the scene it's very sort of it's it's like the baseline test in that in the way it uses sound to convey this incredible just like intensity and the intensity is kind of heightened by um, it's not only a conflict between two replicants and like a struggle to save another one, but it's also a struggle against the pounding sea that's like dragging mm. the car down. And you, you kind of get this strong sense of this 
and it's nice, like it's pitch black. You can only really see this kind of like waves thrashing against these people as they're trying to survive and fight at the same time. And it sort of hints towards, I think, um, a sense that this this whole society will inevitably just be swept away by the ocean. Like there'll, there'll come a time when they just they can't. There's no there's no walls high enough they can build that'll keep it out, and it'll just nature will just. Uh, pound it all into into dust and that's what it's threatening to do here yeah it's 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 very like menacing like this is the the ocean is extremely like sinister in this uh in this in this scene it's all roiling um, and kind of foaming and boiling over them and um yeah and like yeah. The, just it, it, it it's like it's just constantly threatening to drag the the, the characters into the depths right um and uh yeah the use of lighting is really really good in that scene um and also it's interesting because um love previously associated herself with the tide right and then she ends up dying she drowns to death um yeah Kay drowns her to death yeah it's um it's real intense um and once once love is uh, is gone um Kay drags deckard back to the shore and um says that the the story will be that Deckard drowned out there um, and that they're, they're going to go and meet Anna. So they fly back to uh, Anna Staline, uh, to her, her facility. And this just sort of, the film kind of just comes to a halt here where um, it's snowing, Kay gives Deckard the wooden horse and Deckard kind of asks, like, why, why, why do this for him? Um, I'm not sure if Kay replies or what his reply is. Do you remember? Uh, I can't remember. I think, I think the implication is that it's just sort of, he just did it. Like, there wasn't really a strong reason for it. Yeah, I think. It, you know, it would have been it would have been really great if uh, he had held up the horse and uh, said, uh, why don't you ask him? <laughs> <laughs> nice. And then they both look into the camera. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, De- Deckard, Deckard goes indoors and meets meets Anna. Like interestingly, uh, Anna is like spinning a kind of an image of snow inside her chamber. Um, mm-hmm. She doesn't realize who it is. Um, Kay sort of lays himself down on the steps in the snow, and he he sort of does. The, I think he does this thing where like he's authentically experiencing the snowfall in the same way that Joy uh, experienced the rainfall earlier in the film. Right, or uh, or Roy experiences the rainfall in in the end of Blade Runner, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, this is this is like it was mentioned on the Waypoint spoiler cast, but this is like a verbatim quote of the end of Cowboy Bebop. Uh, is it <laughs> okay? Yeah. The the the, the scene where uh, you know um, uh, K dies is is basically the same scene as where Spike dies at the end of uh, Cowboy Bebop. So. So, which is not implausible because the director who did Cowboy Bebop was also the guy who did the short uh, blackout uh, ah, movie for, for this this movie. So, obviously, you know the director's a fan. So cool, yeah. And that's basically the end of the film. Um, it just sort of leaves off with uh, Deckard wordlessly kind of looking at Anna, and yeah, they've they've been and reunited. Like, very like weird, like the it's a kind of an anti-climax in a way right like harrison ford does it's either a failure of harrison ford's 
acting or just it was meant to be ambiguous that like well what the hell are they going to do now like mm. you know what is this relationship like like i mean I, I can kind of see it going either way like that it was meant to be this kind of like oh they've reunited the you know matter is solved or what does this relationship even mean yeah, um, and it's yeah. it's it's not even it's not even clear if Kay dies either or what happens. To, like he he is he is injured pretty badly and he lays himself down and that kind of thing. But like, um, there's a big open question of like what what comes next for these characters. Um, mm -hmm. There isn't really yeah. a neat um, wrap up to it. Um, yeah, which is similar to the original, like the the final cut of Blade Runner, right? They, yeah, yeah. They get in the elevator and then that's it, right? So. Um, so yeah, pretty fantastic stuff, and um, as we've as we found a lot to unpack. <laughs> um, I think this this film's a lot deeper than it initially appears, and like I've I've heard reports of people being disappointed with it, um, and I th I think it's probably that people are going in thinking it's going to be a a dumb sci-fi cop shooter sort of thing, um, <laughs> and just not not spotting a lot of this material um, that's there. Yeah, th there's a lot going on. Um, I've seen a lot of people criticize this movie for um, being all white um, mm -hmm. and for treating women in the movie badly. Um, and I think those are valid criticisms. And I think this movie probably did underperform partially because they chose deliberately not to include an Asian character in a setting that is, like, very Asian-coded. Yeah, definitely. Uh, because it probably would have sold better in Asia if there was a Asian lead uh, somewhere in that cast. Um, and uh, and that was a decision that they made, right? That, that mm. you know, we want a white cast for this movie that's it's you know like they could have cast something they could have cast someone else they must have had those kinds of discussions um about the profitability of the movie because of course blade runner was kind of like the original blade runner like didn't do super well it wasn't very well thought of for a long time um it's a very slow movie that like will put a lot of people to sleep um and they must have talked about like how can we make this movie profitable in 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 the lead up to it but yeah i mean i was talking with with japanese um friends of mine about the original blade runner and for them it's partially sort of a relic of the bubble era and japan's global influence at that time um and it's sort of a mark of how how much influence Japan had over America at that point in time in the American imagination. Uh, but it's also like they, you know, the Japanese in, in the original uh, Blade Runner in the discussion in the, in the market there about, you know, how much Udon or whatever it is that Deckard wants from the street vendor. Uh, it does. It's carried on from the one side in Japanese and it is like proper Japanese of proper pronunciation mm. Um, and, uh, you know, people here pick up on that a lot, right? That's like, oh, you know, this is, this is, you know, real Japanese being spoken here. And like, even that tiny bit of representation in that movie is enough to like, kind of get people invested in the film, yeah. right? Because like, wouldn't, um, wouldn't Joshi have been an obvious sort of choice for... Yeah, like it could have been, 
so many characters, right? Any of it them, really, been, you know. You know, it could have been any of them. Um, really, it could have been any of them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, even maybe Anna, they could have done that. And uh, But, like, it was just they just decided against it and you know and, and you know the there's no like significant black characters in the movie aside from the the guy in the market who's um uh identifying the wood i mean like you know like joy could have been black like any like it's just like they the casting choices are like really kind of like weird and like, I could kind of understand in this, like, really, like, strange reactionary way how they could be like, well, the original movie was, like, totally whitewashed, so our movie should be whitewashed, too, right? Like, it's like, I, I like, I could, I could see where there would be people in the discussion who would say those kinds of things, but it doesn't mean it's a good idea, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so... Um, so, yeah, so, like, I, I, I find a lot in... Um, in movies that have some kind of like Marxist content in them and they aren't like cartoons, right? Like, cause oftentimes you have like Disney movies and stuff that have this kind of like vaguely anti-capitalist message or even explicitly <coughs> anti-capitalist message, but because they're like coded in cartoon terms, like people don't really pick up on it very much. But when it comes to like live action movies, if, if, if movies have this very sort of like overt like on the nose quote unquote marxist message about class struggle they pretty much always get panned by critics yeah right? yeah they do and I, I don't really want to do like the opposite thing here of saying like oh well you know like um the issues with gender and race in this movie are trivial because uh, beside the accomplishment of what it does no it's like no i think like actually the the, the issues that this movie has of those things does in some ways like make it a weaker movie than uh it yeah. could have been maybe. yeah definitely I'm in, I'm in agreement there that like um th those omissions stand out certainly um i think part particularly in in a in a fictional setting in which like the holograms can have pink skin or any any sort of appearance they want and in which um they've kind of explicitly outlined that for the replicants um the kind of genetic reproduction isn't a factor like that the the lack of diversity in the kind of um representation of the the, the, the visuals of the humans is and and the holograms and such is kind of weird like it's um yeah and i was i was talking to a friend about this and he was suggesting that like well this might be like indicative of some kind of genocide that has happened um you know maybe but you know, that's kind of one of those things where, like, if hmm. you're not going to address it, I'm not going to give you the benefit of the doubt, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that <laughs> uh, would make a lot of sense. Um, uh, because, like, I feel like so much about what the original Blade Runner represented in terms of, you know, like, obviously both of these movies are very heavily about anxiety about the present. And, and Blade Runner, a lot of the anxiety that is in that movie is about the about america being overrun by globalization right that that the, the like the the white working class has been utterly uprooted right that that is like the the terror that is behind the original blade runner um where you have like coming out of the 70s and the defeats of the 70s and the rise of globalization 
um, just a lot of, of very deep-seated fear about globalization and the way that ends up getting like racialized um, as a message. Um, and it, it really shows up really, really strongly there. Um, what, what, you know, with that background, uh, I feel like there's there needs to be some kind of statement made about it. And, and it doesn't speak well of this movie that as much as it deals with our contemporary anxieties... And it does really address like issues like, you know, slavery, uh, exploitation of people in poor countries around the world, um, border controls, uh, surveillance. Uh, it insists on not having any of those people be people of color, you know, yeah. and for the and most that, part. Right. That really like, stands just out. Very few people. Um so yeah, it's it's like there is there is definitely some kind of anxiety about race that is happening in the direction and writing and the casting of this movie. Um, and I'm not sure entirely what it is that is going on there, but it's definitely worth mentioning because it would be it'd be wrong to say like you know there are all these anxieties about the present that are expressed in this movie and not address that one which is so glaringly obviously in your face right yeah like that's um it's for, for a movie that's so careful about what it puts on the screen you know like it's it's got to be a factor there um it's 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 not a it's not a carelessly made film no no not at all like it feels like there's a lot of art put into this movie there's no question right and it, it it feels like each decision that was made had a lot of thought put into it and yeah the casting is one of those decisions that had a lot of thought put into it i think or i suspect <laughs> yeah. you know <laughs> yeah which is is like pretty pretty concerning um yeah so yeah and i mean the standard defense would be that um it's it's just just the way things are in this kind of tier of Hollywood, you know that like representation of uh, minorities isn't particularly good in like big budget films anyway. But again, it's a yeah, very yeah. But like, film. I feel like this is like noticeably worse than most yeah, big budget. As films. in, there's like zero representation. Zero. Like this is a white, white, white cast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and like that that like that feels like it wouldn't get through most sort of design by committee meetings about producing a film product yeah. because because in a very cynical way um and like Austin Walker was talking about this on Waypoint that like there's this thing about late capitalism where it's like oh yeah we're progressive because we market to you as consumers like uh, to people of color as consumers and we represent you in our films because you are a market right but like even that level of cynical like offering of like mm -hmm. buy-in to the product is not present here right like it feels like it feels like a thing where it's like you know this movie is like supposed to have like a bold artistic vision um, and so like they gave like they gave control in some ways to the creative team uh, and what ended up happening with that. Like, I mean, again, this is all speculation. I don't want to slander anybody, but it, it feels like the result of that was we get this really, really, really white cast. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Uh, so and, you know, I mean, that is 
something that's often the case with a lot of sort of like quote unquote Oscar bait movies as well. Mm, yeah. Right. That like there's a racial coding to prestige film uh, that maybe is spilling over into this movie because this is this is supposed to be like crossover between like quote unquote genre fiction and art. Right. Um, you know, so uh, that may be where some of those casting choices or practices came into it, but mm. I'm, I'm not really sure. Uh, but you know, yeah. we can't we can't speculate forever. But it, it's it's uh, yeah, it's a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> does it does it sort of feel like there's been um, in very very recent sort of times there's been a little bit of a kind of rollback of that kind of progress that had been made with um, representation in media. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a that's a weird sort of factor. I'm not sure. Yeah, not not sure where that's coming from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, nevertheless, it is a very very good movie. I have to say, it's um, good stuff. Um, um, it's very thought provoking. Um, it is, and I I think it it deals with so many um like I said anxieties about the environment, um you know environmental collapse about um immigration mm. about the guilt of um commodity fetishism and like the disavowal of labor that produces the commodities that we consume it deals with that it deals with um it deals with a lot of anxiety i think about the the sort of breakdown of the traditional family or breakdown of gender roles yeah, uh, yeah. maybe doesn't necessarily do it in a very like positive sense but there isn't there's nothing in this movie that is positive this is a very very bleak movie so there's no redemption for anything in this movie um so i think that even though the gender roles it presents are largely very um like regressive or uh or troubling um it doesn't mean that it's not thinking seriously about them. Right, right. yeah, that's, that's the thing. That, like, um, this is a very ugly world. And when something like gender roles and, and such are kind of presented in a kind of an ugly fashion, it's the ugliness of the world that's shining through there. Like, it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fairly consistently grim sort of picture uh, <laughs> of, yeah, uh, and of I mean, reality. It, it, it's, um, it feels considered in a way that the film's treatment of race or non-treatment of race uh, doesn't. Right? Yeah, yeah. And that, that that again makes the, the race thing seem more glaring that like, well, the, the film is capable of like thinking like, deeply This is a about... movie about slavery. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's right there. Like, there's there's like all these allusions to like, you know, sort of like real things that have happened in the history mm. of slavery. So they're obviously thinking about these things. Yeah, but... there's like the, the fucking thing where Wallace like says the bit about we've lost our appetite for slavery and he he almost like looks into the camera and winks <laughs> you know it's just so yeah so on and, the nose. like just you know like the blade runners their job is is just you know it's got such sort of deep roots in american history yeah like or even I, I in know. the american present like again the core yeah, of the film no, like, is i um, mean this is this is ice right this yeah. is ice this is it's what it is. Yeah. It's, it's cops gunning down people they don't consider to be human. Like that's the core yeah. of the entire plot. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty fucked up. Um, so yeah, I guess like just sort of concluding thoughts about uh, the movie. Um, I guess you know, as a sort of podcast about socialism, I think I should address this sort of socialism capitalism question here. And you know, I feel like kind of the I feel like the same way about this movie as I kind of do about Blade Runner that this is a movie about the foreclosure of socialism. Pretty much, yeah. Um, even though the Soviet Union does ostensibly exist in this in this world, it has advertisements up in the middle of the city. Um, <laughs> uh, that ballerina that you see in the city scene has got the the CCCP on it. Um, yeah, no, it's 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 a very like thoroughly sort of capitalist society transitioning probably into the kind of exterminist uh future that's suggested in um in uh peter phrase's book there yeah absolutely um this is very much the exterminus like this is um this is a dystopia in which the capitalist mode of production just persists and persists and keeps going regardless of um of what other changes happen um and all, all those other changes like the the introduction of replicants the environmental collapse um all the technological change are all taking place within the framework of capitalism and of a state that bolsters it um and yeah it leads to this kind of ugliness yeah and i, I mean again and it, it's totally like 100 percent addressing straight on like the interaction of racialized oppression and capital accumulation and the relationship to the state except there are no people of color <laughs> yeah. So, yeah anyway it is addressing these issues is just in a very very strange way yeah um uh because somehow if we're talking about robots and androids they have to be white um so i i, I think um yeah i mean that there there is kind of in, like we said um in the off-world colonies this sort of distant image of a modern a poetic modernism or salvation through modernism or you know i wouldn't say socialism in this case but i think it, it is gesturing in that direction mm, um in yeah. the way we're going to kind of talk about in our discussion of uh graber's essay mm. we're we're led to believe that the uh or because we, we never i don't think in either of the films we get any kind of a glimpse at the awful colonies themselves but we are led to believe that they are like substantially better societies to live yeah, in than because Earth. Th the way you know they're better is because there is a kind of eugenics program in screening who gets to go there yeah right like jf sebastian is rejected because he's like ha he has these developmental issues um anna is rejected because of her health problems um you know poverty is a way of screening it's very much like the current um immigration system right I mean, it really reminds me of, like, the case of Japan. Like, you can immigrate here if you meet all of the requirements. Mm. Uh, but if you're a refugee, too bad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Like, no refugees allowed, right? Like, um, uh, so that's kind of the case of the off-world colonies, too. These sort of islands of, of relative... Uh, of prosperity um, yeah and that that kind of poetic modernity is in contrast to the kind of postmodern technologies of um simulation and representation and such that kind of permeate the the earthbound blade runner world it's a genetic manipulation as a way of control um sort of mind control through the the programming of the baseline test 
the um, manipulation like, and know, proliferation sort of, of images. Drone strikes, right? Yeah. Like that's uh, these are all these sort of technologies that Graber uh, kind of lambasts for being a extremely like disappointing and regressive compared to the technologies that characterize the sort of vital um active period of of capitalism yeah um, yeah in in the past um and we'll be we'll be covering that in probably two episodes from when this one airs i think um so that'll be something to look forward to um yeah (laughs) and uh yeah um other things to to talk about here um i think that the really essential thing to to talk about is this issue of motivation and authenticity right um and freedom yeah agency and like what kind of choices are actually available to these and and these characters i I think this has this has been brought up by many people like this was very much foregrounded in the waypoint um podcast about this uh but also in many essays i've read about this movie that this movie betrays like almost more than any of the other anxieties we talked about the anxiety that we are utterly unfree in late capitalism right that we have no actual agency um and that we're we're like i think this this there's this enormous uh deep-seated anxiety that we're living with right now that we are on a a crash course and there's nothing we can do to alter it right that like we are going towards the nightmare future of that this movie uh, represents yeah and and like, i've heard that we do not have the capacity to do anything other than what we are brought up to do or instinctually do um and it's 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 just it's all going down yeah and i've i've heard that sort of perspective directly from people i know that sort of like nihilistic kind of Mm -hmm. um take on on things that like yeah we're we're heading on the trajectory for um a horrible kind of exterminist future and there's it's it's it tends to vary by whether it's like oh we could change but it's too difficult or like it's not worth rocking the boat over or like it's impossible to change course um these various sort of things but yeah there's this very present anxiety in our culture about our our agency to alter our society at uh, at a higher level like at, at a level higher than than ourselves as individuals yeah and i mean it, it feels like the sort of position of disavowal that Kay is in at the start of the movie is our normal way of operating in this society. And the um, baseline test very much feels like a job interview. Of mm, some kind, it does, right? doesn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, it's, it's also kind of like uh, from the Kafka story, like be, before the law, like you are before the law, you're before power. Um, being examined but that kind of combination of sort of like disassociation from our actual circumstances and uh kind of terror at at surveillance and uh kind of coercion um is is i think really like just zeroing in on the way people feel right now Mm, yeah um yeah 
And uh, and I think this movie has an incredibly bleak take on this question. Um, oh, yes. I think the, yeah. the message of this movie is that we have no freedom. Freedom is impossible. Yeah, because everything in the movie is done according to programming essentially like it's all following instincts or following explicitly programmed like instructions yeah so there's k's sort of programming with the baseline test and the memories that were implanted into him which we didn't really talk about this but um that memory like so why did why did anna cry when she saw that k had that memory and that it was real it's because she put it there and the reason she's crying is not because she recognizes her own memory it's because she feels terrible at having manipulated him his whole life and the like the enormous crime that she has done uh in implanting the replicants with these memories so that they can work to her ends right this is that thing where the images of softness like this is one thing i will say that this movie has to say about race is that it is very much playing with the associations we have with a nice looking white girl in that scene <laughs> yep <laughs> that because bec like this is so much the thing that we see with like gentrification where people feel unable to stop gentrification in some way because the people who come in and gentrify seem so nice and they bring culture and they bring this sort of artisanal uh, commitment to beautiful and interesting things with them. Um, but it doesn't mean like, you know, part of the, the systemic violence that this is represents and that, that like Anna's even explicit position as like someone who implants false memories in replicants so that they can perform as willing slaves. Um, this is a very um, it's a very violent thing that she's doing, but it it's not done out of malice or uh, and she's not doing it out of cruelty. She loves her work. And she is just trying to save herself, but it effectively is an, an act of enormous violence that she's committing. So th this whole thing about mistaking the appearances of people and mistaking their intentions for the full story, I think is really, um, really, really on point. The, the analysis that they're doing there. Um, it's very, very smart. Um, because, you know, she does honestly feel bad about what she's done, but it doesn't make her a good person, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it doesn't mean that, like, just because, like, she's a beautiful white woman who's crying and being emotional that we can say, oh, well, it's all fine. No, you can't do that, right? Like, you know, you have to think about what is the the position that she's in? What, yeah, what, what is she actually she, doing? What are the effects of what she's doing? Yeah. Yeah, and like for for a character that gets so little screen time, like there's she has an enormous enormous role in uh, in ab how everything plays out. Um, yes, she she's a character who has a tremendous amount of power in this movie, uh, even though it appears that she doesn't. Mm, right? Yeah, she's got that that helpless kind of, uh, but or even just the the soft kind of pleasant kind of look to her. 
um, the helplessness of being behind glass. Um, and yet her, she projects power through the story in a, in a way that Wallace doesn't seem to be able to. Yeah, I mean, his power is sort of like assumed. It's like omnipresent, but it doesn't really motivate the plot in the same way that hers does. Uh, the, the sort of, you know, it's like Wallace's power is more like expressed by way of love, but love's actions are very just like to the point, uh, destructive and and violent, and they aren't subtle. You know, but her Anna's actions are very subtle in their effects, but very, very omnipresent and powerful. Um, but, you know, yeah, so the, the, that's like really where you get to with Kay, right? Is that is he free in his act to reunite Deckard with Anna and risk his life for it? Uh, it, it for him, he just kind of says, like, look, I have these emotions um, I have these memories, I have these emotions, even though they're not mine, it means something to me, it motivates me somehow. Um, so it's really hard to say what his internal position is on that. I think the the lesson seems to be that um, beyond a certain point, the kind of authenticity of the emotion or, or of the original impulse doesn't seem to matter for how the thing plays out. Like, um, Kay is probably swarming and swirling with these different conflicting emotions, but he he still acts in the way he does. Like, he, he goes ahead and does the thing with little regard for whether it actually is real or not, which I think calls back to the... It's the connection to Pale Fire between, between um, the baseline test and Pale Fire is that one of the core themes of Pale Fire is that there's there's an error of judgment or an error of kind of information, but it doesn't... Even becoming aware of that error doesn't actually affect the kind of emotional content of um, of that thing, you know. Uh, and I think the same is largely true for K, where there is a there's an error of understanding as to the origin of that memory. Uh, there's an error of understanding as to his nature, like whether he he's a you know born replicant or or a manufactured one. Um, there's errors in sort of the agency. Like the, the, he sort of goes back and forth a few times on what kind of agency he has, but he still sort of just does. He still acts on the um, impulses that come from the emotions anyway. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and that's what really distinguishes him so much from um, uh, from Roy in Blade Runner, right? Where Roy is a very different character from any of the characters that we get in this movie. Um, Roy is a character who seems to suggest that he has achieved a kind of freedom like it is a it is a personal victory that he wins to be sure right that he comes to terms with his own mortality and to he comes to terms with his relationship to society um and you know there's that that scene where it's like he's threatening he's threatening deckard he's gonna kill deckard but then he saves Deckard, right? Mm, he saves yeah. when he saves Deckard, he catches him with the very hand that he's driven a nail through, right? Um, so there's this violence even in the way that he saves Deckard, um, and then he just speaks about sort of the authenticity of his experience, even in the face of everything he's suffered in his life. Um, and he, he's he's this kind of like you know Nietzschean figure beyond good and evil. Right, that he's 
he's authentic and able to express his power and in legislating his own values and and uh coming to terms with his own suffering um but that is not k right not at all k k is kind of like he's very passive in the way that he accepts his lot at the end right like he does the job he does his man's work right he does he goes and does the fight and he wins but after that it's kind of like okay i've done my job now he literally lays down and he doesn't have the cool monologue. He de- definitely doesn't have the cool monologues. Definitely, definitely uh, lacking compared to uh, to Roy's monologue at the end there. Uh, the little sort of shrug that he does to, to Deckard when he tries. It was like, well, why did you do any of this? He doesn't go on like a long <laughs> soliloquy about like everything he's been through. And it's like, uh, you know, um, but uh you know, this also apply, applies to, like, the questions we raised about Joy's motivations. It seems like she kind of just, like, doubles down on the motivation she's given. The resistance seems to be more or less following the same kind of agenda that Kay is, even if he's kind of doing his own thing and has decided to save Deckard in a way that they didn't. And, and you know, they're, they're, they're kind of committed to this... this idea of biological reproduction that in a weird way coincides with the interests of capital yeah they're um they've very much folded the the premise into themselves like they they're they're unable to approach the the scenario from a different angle at all like they're they're kind of the 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 way they deal with it is the way that's been handed to them um like there's very little agency there there's very little in the way of revolutionary sort of meaningful revolutionary change yeah and then you have the you have wallace who is you know in this position of enormous power and knowledge and like he's even like kind of like jacked into the system like you say he's like a techno wizard Mm. um he has he's in the matrix yeah yeah he's like maximally empowered right like there's nobody above him in terms of the hierarchy who's like telling him what he can and can't do but what he ends up doing with that is just kind of enacting this stupid fantasy of quantitative (laughs) expansion yeah uh in terms of capital but also in terms of just like well i want millions more children right like he's like this really like dumb patriarch figure like it's, it's kind of like the the master in hegel right that like he's like yeah he's really strong and he's got lots of power but like he's not very mentally stimulated because he's just he's just too full of himself right um and, and you know this is obviously like taking shots at like these sort of like silicon valley uh robber barons right like that's that's, that's very much what's going on with that character. I like to I like to think of him as a dumb person's idea of a smart guy. Like he's what a person what a dumb person with a limited imagination would think a smart techno wizard would be. You know, he's got this Yeah, he's he's living in the shadow. Yeah. Living in the shadow of Tyrell, right? And you know, what what it suggests in a way is that like we've come all this way as a species with all this power we've amassed over nature. But it's gone out of our control, and all we can think to do is to run somewhere else to destroy the next world. Like, right? Mm. Like, he, it, it's just this, like, it, like, effectively, it's the, the kind of message that Agent Smith tells Neo in the first uh, Matrix movie, right? Like, yeah. you're a virus. Humans as a virus. Uh, yeah. 
yeah, that like we're really no better than slime mold. Like all we can do is think about reproducing. Yeah, um, and Wallace just he he's animated solely by this kind of like expansionist kind of greedy sort of uh, thing, and like his only ambition is to just spread across the stars um, like a virus. Um, it's kind of telling as well that like like with with all the with all the capital in the world behind him and with all the technology in the world the thing he wants the most the kind of reproductive reproduction is the same thing that basically anyone rolling around in the muck can achieve you know it's like right. there, there's no like difference any human actually. can do it yeah it's by definition the the least novel thing that can be done yeah no and then like that's pretty insightful into the way that like silicon valley operates right like because it's that that thing we've been talking about where it's like it's like the bodega thing right like it's like you took this very pedestrian commonplace thing and hyped it up <laughs> and and like framed it in these tech terms but you're just reinventing the wheel you know yeah um, it's the same old and, stuff and, yeah and so it, 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 i think the indictment of that character is is very very strong in this movie uh, if you if you give it enough thought because he talks a good game right like he's 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 very enthralling as a person. Like mm. in, in, in this, in, in like he's so like he's so into himself and his like grand vision, right? That uh, it's if you don't give it any thought, it's easy to think like, oh yeah, he really is a genius. Like you know, oh yeah, like. But actually, when you think about it in like a kind of more considered way, he's a fraud, right? Uh, he's a very, very powerful fraud, and uh, um, like again, he's a he's a dumb person's idea of a smart guy. You know, it's yeah. like if you don't bother analyzing at all, he looks really impressive and smart. <laughs> yeah. Definitely, and so I, I, I think, um, yeah, I think it's worthwhile to give this movie some thought and to mm. to think about it at length because I think I come down on it. You know, we've really been going around this question of like whether this movie is sort of. In the in response to a kind of moral panic about gender roles and reproduction, whether this movie is just doubling down on the idea that parenthood is soul granting, meaning granting in this world in a way that nothing else can be, um, and that that heterosexual reproduction is the essence of human existence. Um, and I think the the I think where I come down on this question in this movie is that uh, I don't think that's the position this movie takes. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I, I don't think that's. that's I, I think this movie is a critique of that idea. Yeah. But it's very easy to mistake what it's doing if you don't give it a lot of thought on a on a, in a very wide way. A look at like all the different characters in the movie and what they have to say about what this means um so i think this is a movie that offers no positive program or hope of any kind but i do think it sort of rejects the premise it sets up right yeah it's it's not made in any way to be a positive vision at all like you're you're not you're not meant to want this um mm -hmm. as, which yeah. is kind of why we, we we we've basically failed to really extract any kind of positive message related to socialism from it aside from just like don't do any of these things as as the lesson um right yeah and i mean this it, it, it's it's not about making a program this is a movie about 
working through anxiety, right? That you know, that's that's what's going on here. It, it's it's not about how do we solve this problem. It's about how do we feel about this problem. Yeah, very uh, much. Um, uh, it sort of has a it has that tone of a, some kind of dystopian sci-fi where um, it's meant to serve as a warning, and by by writing the warning, it's sort of like um, the author almost intends to kind of have it be a self non-fulfilling prophecy by like i think 1984 sort of slots into that kind of thing where it's like it became so embedded in the popular consciousness that like many of its i suppose like surveillance stuff has happened anyway but like um it became a rallying cry a, a counter cry yeah that um for a long time you'd be unable to kind of propose any kind of mass uh, anything that kind of had a, a big brotherish kind of tone you know without it being suggested to have a big brotherish tone um and it's like this this kind of sci-fi is important because it gives us signposts and like objects to point at and say that's a bad thing i don't want that um yeah and i think a lot of the criticism well one of the criticisms of this movie or of the original blade runner is that the very slow uh panoramic cinematography in it um and the kind of like mood it evokes of melancholy um is an expression of the position it takes on class struggle of not siding with one one way or the other being unwilling to side with capital and unwilling to side with with labor uh i think it's a valid criticism and i think this movie does have the danger of kind of falling into that bioshock infinite issue right where like oh you know there's a horrible regime of racial slavery and they're revolutionaries, but the revolutionaries are also bad. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, it, it, it definitely kind of gestures in that direction, right? It does take that sort of classically ambivalent, like, centrist position in a way. But I think it at least... It doesn't portray the re revolutionaries as villains. And it at least asks an interesting question when dealing with them. Even though, like, I don't think that, you know, I, I think, like, that is, like, legitimately where this, like, where this movie is coming from. It is coming from a position of deep ambivalence and anxiety. And as, like, sort of a text that um, has something to say about socialist praxis, I think it isn't very useful. And I think, in, in a way, it can lead us to wallow in the kind of detachment or um, disavowal that it brings up. But it doesn't necessarily do that, right? Like, it is at least a way to question these things. Mm. It does bring up questions, and I can appreciate it for that a lot. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a very important... I think especially, especially now when a lot of people, and, you know, particularly, I think, people who could lean left are kind of, like, in the habit of not really thinking about or questioning anything at this point. Like, um, it feels like neoliberal capitalism is just triumphant and kind of has swallowed everything. Like, having having any pieces of media that point towards different possibilities or even raise any kind of questions. Um, and, you know, even better if, they, if it raises them as skillfully as this film does. Um, any of that is yeah. good. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool. That's good stuff. Um, yeah, I think we're probably going to split this one into a two-parter <laughs> at the least. <laughs> yeah. But um, 
yeah, that's that's been um I think that's been a good good pair of episodes there. Um so yeah, listeners, um you can find us on Twitter at G I Unit Pod. Um you can find us on Facebook at General Intellect Unit. Um we're also we have websites generalintellectunit.net and we are available on pretty much all of the podcasting apps. So please do subscribe, like, rate, uh, leave reviews, do all those kind of things. Or probably more useful, just share with your uh, your friends, anyone you know who might appreciate this kind of perspective on um, technology and politics, and in this case on uh, on media relating to both. Um, we'll be back in two weeks with I think we're the next episode that airs will be uh, the California the Californian ideology. Uh, and after that, we'll be covering David Graeber's uh, article uh, of flying cars and the declining rate of profit, which we had alluded to during this, um, yeah, this episode. Y- you too. can expect to see some uh, see some references to this movie pop up in the Graeber episode, uh, but uh, not the Californian ideology episode. So no, if there are no. glaring connections that we're missing there, we know. Don't don't add us. We, add us yeah. if you have something nice to say. <laughs> Just no, never, never add us. Um, actually, no. Um, I, I was kind of thinking we should maybe say that, like, we we might take even like discussion prompts or something from from adding mm-hmm. on Twitter. That like, if you think there's something we need to know about, um, and of course we won't make any promises at all. But like, um, this this can be a bit of a collaborative thing with uh, the community too. Uh, so if you've got any kind of cool ideas ping us on twitter or wherever we are sort of watching feedback and i am noting kind of like ideas that people are bringing up on reddit and yeah. that sort of thing yeah um yeah it's good stuff uh, i guess we'll see you all in two weeks with the californian ideology thanks for listening and goodbye bye